0: PodCastle, episode 358, for April 7th, 2015. Gabriel Ernest, by Saki. Rated PG.
1: Hello and welcome to PodCastle. I'm Rachel K. Jones, here to tidy up around the castle after Dave and Anna's big retirement party last week. It's been a while since I hosted here, not since last October's selection from Women Destroy Fantasy, but in the meantime you've enjoyed some of my fictional works, notably Makisha and Time in January. It is great to be back! I'm sure you're expecting new editors Don and Kitty today, and I have an update to share. They've been hard at work behind the scenes for the last three months, but unfortunately they aren't going to be able to take the Helmet Podcastle due to some unexpected circumstances. So we are wishing them all the best as they move on to new adventures. And in their place, Dave and Anna have tapped me and Graham Dunlop, PodCastle's very own Barbarian Lizard King, sound producer of Pseudopod and narrator extraordinaire, as the next co-editors of PodCastle. This also means PodCastle isn't moving to a quarterly theme after all. Of course, you'll still get to hear some selections collected for the Dirty Jobs call... But they'll be mixed in with the best, most diverse fantasy fiction, all the variety we've come to love over the last seven years here at Podcastle. So, what are we doing today? Well, thankfully, Dave and Anna have left some instructions. While we were cleaning up around the castle, we found this big parchment envelope stuck on the door to the editorial keep labeled Very Important. Read immediately. Let's check it out together.
2: Dear Graham and Rachel, Congratulations. If you're reading this, you're getting settled in a PodCastle. It can be a bit of a handful. If you've ever owned a flying castle before, you know what I mean. But with a little patience and TLC, you'll learn how to fly it to the furthest reaches of imagination. A little advice. The castle has some peculiar habits and likes to stick to certain routines. You'll want to keep it on schedule so it stays happy and healthy. Walk the castle every Tuesday, or else it gets antsy and liable to run off into dark fantasy. Feed it a diverse diet. It needs a wide variety of stories to stay healthy. If it's been especially good, give it some flash fiction out of the little box in the bottom drawer in the editor's desk. And it likes a little Tim Pratt and Heather Shaw in its diet in December. We've left the castle pantry well-stocked with butter... In time, you'll learn what it's for. Uh, trust us, you'll be glad you have it when the time comes. In the ballroom, there's a grand oak armoire with a little silver key in the lock. Don't open it under any circumstances. This is very important. We learn that the hard way. On full moons, the stairs turn into water slides. The water slides flow both directions, so it's not generally a problem unless you're made of paper that day. If that happens, ask a friend to fold you into a boat and you'll get through just fine. Finally, we have to tell you something important. Podcastle's most closely guarded and dangerous secret. At a certain time each year, the castle experiences a terrible affliction. It was our fault. We brought the infection into the castle and unfortunately, it won't leave with us. It's in the walls now, which means it's in the castle's very bones, and it is highly contagious. But don't worry. You'll be fine as long as you follow these simple instructions. We've enclosed the story. If you read the story, all will be well, and the affliction will pass for now. Fail to do it, and...
1: Hmm. Here it just cuts off beneath the big brown blotch at the letter's end? Coffee? Blood? Hmm, and after that, the only thing I can make out is hugs and kisses, Dave and Anna. Hmm. Well, the story they left us is Gabriel Ernest by Saki. Hey, I know Saki! That's the pen name of Hector Human Roe, the great British humor writer who lived between 1870 and 1916. He was best known for witty, often macabre stories that satirized Edwardian society. This story first appeared in his 1910 collection, Reginald in Russia and Other Sketches, and is read to you by my shiny new co-editor, Graham Dunlop. So remember to obey your auntie, and she says you're to enjoy the story.
0: Gabriel Ernest by Saki "'There is a wild beast in your woods,' said the artist Cunningham, as he was being driven to the station. It was the only remark he had made during the drive, but as Van Cheele had talked incessantly, his companion's silence had not been noticeable. "'A stray fox or two and some resident weasels. Nothing more formidable,' said Van Cheele. The artist said nothing. "'What did you mean about a wild beast?' Van Cheel said later, when they were on the platform. Nothing. Uh, my imagination. Here is the train, said Cunningham. That afternoon, Van Cheel went for one of his frequent rambles through his woodland property. He had a stuffed bittern in his study, and knew the names of quite a number of wildflowers, so his aunt had possibly some justification in describing him as a great naturalist. At any rate, he was a great walker. It was his custom to take mental notes of everything he saw during his walks, not so much for the purpose of assisting contemporary science as to provide topics for conversation afterwards. When the bluebells began to show themselves in flower, he made a point of informing everyone of the fact. The season of the year might have warned his hearers of the likelihood of such an occurrence, but at least they felt that he was being absolutely frank with them. What Van Cheele saw on this particular afternoon was, however, something far removed from his ordinary range of experience. On a shelf of smooth stone overhanging a deep pool in the hollow of an oak coppice, a boy of about sixteen lay a sprawl, drying his wet brown limbs luxuriously in the sun. His wet hair, parted by a recent dive, lay close to his head, and his light brown eyes, so light that there was an almost tigerish gleam in them, but turned towards Van Cheele with a certain lazy watchfulness. It was an unexpected apparition, and Van Cheele found himself engaged in the novel process of thinking before he spoke. Where on earth could this wild-looking boy hail from? The miller's wife had lost a child some two months ago, supposed to have been swept away by the mill-race, but that had been a mere baby, not a half-grown lad. "'What are you doing there?' he demanded. "'Obviously sunning myself,' replied the boy. "'Where do you live?' "'Here, in these woods.' "'You can't live in the woods,' said Van Cheele. "'They are very nice woods,' said the boy, "'with a touch of patronage in his voice. "'But where do you sleep at night?' "'I don't sleep at night. That's my busiest time.' Van Cheele began to have an irritated feeling that he was grappling with a problem that was eluding him. "'What do you feed on?' he asked. "'Flesh,' said the boy, and he pronounced the word with slow relish, as though he were tasting it. "'Flesh! What flesh?' "'Since it interests you, rabbits, wild fowl, hares, poultry, lambs in their season... Children, when I can get any, they're usually too well locked in at night when I do most of my hunting. It's quite two months since I tasted child flesh. Ignoring the chaffing nature of the last mark, Van Shiel tried to draw the boy on the subject of possible poaching operations. You're talking rather through your hat when you speak of feeding on hares. Considering the nature of the boy's toilet, the simile was hardly an apt one. "'Our hillside hares aren't easily caught.' "'At night I I hunt on four feet,' was the somewhat cryptic response. "'I suppose you mean that you hunt with a dog?' hazarded Van Cheel. "'The boy rolled slowly over onto his back and laughed a weird low laugh "'that was pleasantly like a chuckle and disagreeably like a snarl. "'I don't fancy any dog would be very anxious for my company, especially at night.' Van Cheel began to feel that there was something positively uncanny about the strange-eyed, strange-tongued youngster. "'I can't have you staying in these woods,' he declared authoritatively. "'I fancy you'd rather have me here than in your house,' said the boy. The prospect of this wild, nude animal in Van Cheel's primly ordered house was certainly an alarming one. "'If you don't go, I shall have to make you,' said Van Cheele. The boy turned like a flash, plunged into the pool, and in a moment had flung his wet and glistening body halfway up the bank where Van Cheele was standing. In an otter, the movement would not have been remarkable. In a boy, Van Cheel found it sufficiently startling. His foot slipped as he made an involuntary backward movement, and he found himself almost prostrate on the slippery weed-grown bank with those tigerish yellow eyes not very far from his own. Almost instinctively, he half-raised his hand to his throat. The boy laughed again, a laugh in which the snarl had nearly driven out the chuckle, and then, with another of his astonishing lightning movements, plunged out of view into a yielding tangle of weed and fern. "'What an extraordinary wild animal!' said Van Sheel as he picked himself up. And then he recalled Cunningham's remark, "'There is a wild beast in your woods.' Walking slowly homeward, Van Cheele began to turn over in his mind various local occurrences which might be traceable to the existence of this astonishing young savage. Something had been thinning the game in the woods lately. Poultry had been missing from the farms, hares were growing unaccountably scarcer, and complaints had reached him of lambs being carried off bodily from the hills. Was it possible that this wild boy was really hunting the countryside in company with some clever poacher dogs? He had spoken of hunting four-footed by night. But then again, he had hinted strangely at no dog caring to come near him, especially at night. It was certainly puzzling. And then, as Van Cheele ran his mind over the various depredations that had been committed during the last month or two, he came suddenly to a dead stop alike in his walk and his speculations. The child missing from the mill two months ago? The accepted theory was that it had tumbled into the mill race and been swept away, but the mother had always declared she had heard a shriek on the hillside of the house, in the opposite direction from the water. It was unthinkable, of course, but he wished that the boy had not made that uncanny remark about child flesh eaten two months ago. Such dreadful things should not be said even in fun. Van Cheele, contrary to his usual want, did not feel disposed to be communicative about his discovery in the wood. His position as a parish councillor and justice of the peace seemed somehow compromised by the fact that he was harbouring a personality of such doubtful repute on his property. There was even a possibility that a heavy bill of damages for raided lambs and poultry might be laid at his door. At dinner that night he was quite unusually silent. "'Where's your voice gone to?' said his aunt. "'One would think you had seen a wolf.' Van Cheele, who was not familiar with the old saying, thought the remark rather foolish. If he had seen a wolf on his property his tongue would have been extraordinarily busy with the subject." At breakfast next morning, Van Vansheel was conscious that his feeling of uneasiness regarding yesterday's episode had not wholly disappeared, and he resolved to go by train to the neighbouring cathedral town, hunt up Cunningham, and learn from him what he had really seen that had prompted the remark about a wild beast in the woods. With this resolution taken, his usual cheerfulness partially returned, and he hummed a bright little melody as he sauntered to the morning room for his customary cigarette. As he entered the room, the melody made way abruptly for a pious invocation. Gracefully a sprawl on the ottoman, in an attitude of almost exaggerated repose, was the boy of the woods. He was drier than when Van Cheele had last seen him, but no other alteration was noticeable in his toilet. "'How dare you come here?' asked Van Cheel furiously. "'You told me I was not to stay in the woods,' said the boy calmly. "'But not to come here! Supposing my aunt should see you!' And with a view to minimising that catastrophe, Van Cheel hastily obscured as much of his unwelcome guest as possible under the folds of a morning post." At that moment, his aunt entered the room. Uh, this, "'This is a poor boy who has lost his, his way and, and lost his memory. "'He doesn't know who he is or where he comes from,' explained Van Cheel desperately, "'glancing apprehensively at the waif's face to see whether he was going to add "'inconvenient candour to his other savage propensities. "'Miss Van Cheele was enormously interested. "'Perhaps his underlinen is marked,' she suggested.' Yeah, "'He seems to have lost most of that too,' said Van Cheele, making frantic little grabs at the morning post to keep it in its place. A naked homeless child appealed to Miss Van Cheele as warmly as a stray kitten or derelict puppy would have done. "'We must do all we can for him,' she decided, and in a very short time a messenger, dispatched to the rectory where a pageboy was kept, had returned with a suit of pantry clothes, and the necessary accessories of shirt, shoes, collar, etc. Clothed clean and groomed, the boy lost none of his uncanniness in Van Shiele's eyes, but his aunt found him sweet. "'We must call him something till we know who he really is,' she said. "'Hmm, Gabriel Ernest, I think. Those are nice suitable names.' Van Chil agreed, but he privately doubted whether they were being grafted onto a nice suitable child. His misgivings were not diminished by the fact that his staid and elderly spaniel had bolted out of the house at the first incoming of the boy, and now obstinately remained shivering and yapping at the farther end of the orchard, while the canary, usually as vocally industrious as Van Cheele himself, had put itself on an allowance of frightened cheeps. More than ever, he was resolved to consult Cunningham without loss of time. As he drove off to the station, his aunt was arranging that Gabriel Ernest should help her to entertain the infant members of her Sunday school class at tea that afternoon. Cunningham was not at first disposed to be communicative. "'My mother died of some brain trouble,' he explained." "'so you will understand why I am averse to dwelling on anything of an impossibly fantastic nature "'that I may see or think that I have seen.' "'But what did you see?' persisted Van Cheel. "'What I thought I saw was something so extraordinary "'that no really sane man could dignify it with the credit of having actually happened. "'I was standing, the last evening I was with you, "'half hidden in the hedge-growth by the orchard gate,' watching the dying glow of the sunset. Suddenly I became aware of a naked boy, a bather from some neighbouring pool I took him to be, who was standing out on the bare hillside, also watching the sunset. His pose was so suggestive of some wild fawn of pagan myth that I instantly wanted to engage him as a model, and in another moment I think I should have hailed him. But just then, the sun... Dipped out of view, and all the orange and pink slid out of the landscape, leaving it cold and gray and At the same moment an astounding thing happened. The boy vanished too. what vanished to ain't a nothing asked van Cheele excitedly. No, that is the dreadful part of it. answered the artist on the open hillside where the boy had been standing a second ago, stood a large wolf. "'blackish in colour, with gleaming fangs and cruel yellow eyes. "'You may think—' "'But Van Cheele did not stop for anything as futile as thought. "'Already he was tearing at top speed towards the station. "'He dismissed the idea of a telegram. "'Gabriel Ernest is a werewolf!' "'was a hopelessly inadequate effort at conveying the situation, "'and his aunt would think it was a code message "'to which he had omitted to give her the key.' His one hope was that he might reach home before sundown. The cab which he chartered at the other end of the railway journey bore him with what seemed exasperating slowness along the country roads, which were pink and mauve with the flush of the sinking sun. His aunt was putting away some unfinished jams and cake when he arrived. "'Where is Gabriel Ernest?' he almost screamed. "'He's taking the little Toop-child home,' said his aunt. "'It was getting so late, I thought it wasn't safe to let it go back alone. "'What a lovely sunset, isn't it?' "'But Van Cheele, although not oblivious of the glow in the western sky, "'did not stay to discuss its beauties. "'At a speed for which he was scarcely geared, "'he raced along the narrow lane that led to the home of the Toops. "'On one side ran the swift current of the mill-stream, "'on the other rose the stretch of bare Hillside.' A dwindling rim of red sun showed still on the skyline, and the next turning must bring him in view of the ill-assorted couple he was pursuing. Then the colour went suddenly out of things, and a grey light settled itself with a quick shiver over the landscape. Van Sheel heard a shrill wail of fear and stopped running. Nothing was ever seen again of the Toop Child or Gabriel Ernest, but the latter's discarded garments were found lying in the road, so it was assumed that the child had fallen into the water and that the boy had stripped and jumped in in a vain endeavour to save it. Van Cheel and some workmen who were nearby at the time testified to having heard a child scream loudly just near the spot where the clothes were found. Mrs Toope, who had eleven other children, was decently resigned to her bereavement but Miss Van Cheel sincerely mourned her lost foundling. It was on her initiative that a memorial brass was put up in the parish church to Gabriel Ernest, an unknown boy who bravely sacrificed his life for another. Van Cheel gave way to his aunt in most things, but he flatly refused to subscribe to the Gabriel Ernest memorial.
1: Welcome back. So, I found some magic coffee stain remover and cleaned up Dave and Anna's instructions. Apparently they were trying to warn us about Dave's oddly specific seasonal lycanthropy? Thanks to his rampage last year, every year around Easter, the castle tries to turn its editors into werewolves. It says here you can slow it down with a werewolf story, but not stop it entirely. Hmm... Ram, are you feeling alright there, buddy? It's okay. We have a year to find a cure. We'll get right on that, I promise, right after the episode feedback. Feedback this week is for episode 348 Testimony of Samuel Frobisher regarding events upon His Majesty's ship Confidence, 14 to 22 June, 1818, with diagrams, by Ian Tregellis, read by Ian Stewart. This story was universally loved, with special praise for Ian Stewart's incredible narration. Unblinking summed up the general mood Freaky monster with its very effective charm, both horrible and at times kind of funny. I would love if a talented illustrator like Julie Dillon or Dan Dos Santos would make the illustrations referred to in the testimony. In particular, the one I would love to see is the one he described where the captain is strolling on the deck with a tentacle bride and the monster is holding a parasol that the crew is made from materials on board. If that were illustrated, it might be my favorite illustration of all time. Thank you for those comments. Come let us know what you thought of today's story at forum.escapeartist.net. And if you like to draw, the forums would be a perfect place to make Unblinking's dreams come true with an illustration of the tentacled bride with a parasol. On a quick administrative note, we'll be temporarily closed to submissions during April while we arrange the upcoming schedule, and we'll reopen the submissions portal in May. So keep an eye out for that. Well, that was our show this week. On behalf of everyone here at PodCastle, Arun Jiwa, Sarah Goldman, Peter Wood, and Graham Dunlop, Thank you for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another story. Until then, this is Rachel K. Jones for Podcastle, reminding you that when the time comes, you'll be glad you have all that butter. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. William Kemp said, I think we all have to fight the werewolf within us somehow.